You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Hey, good morning, Harvest Brampton. It's really good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for your commitment to uh, make worship a part of your weekend. That should be a great priority in our life, and it's good to worship with you. Lynn and I always look forward to the chance to uh, once in a while get back to Canada, uh, the land flowing with Tim Hortons and Swiss Chalet. And uh, uh, we've enjoyed our time here. We actually got a chance to see our family in Brantford, and we've uh, had a great time doing some elder training in London on Friday and Saturday with some of our, our churches here in the area. And had a great time with Ted and Lindsay. We love them. Got a great relationship with them. You guys have a great pastor. And uh, I know you know that. And I'm sure you guys love him. And so we enjoyed your time with them. I also want to thank you for your partnership in church planting. And uh, as uh, Pastor Chris said, I spent half of my time in HBF now. And uh, that's one of the things that I'm greatly excited about is just the impact that God is making through church planting, not only here in North America, but around the world. And I hope you guys have a sense that that's not just something we're doing in Chicago. That's something we're doing together. You guys pray about that. You allow your uh, senior pastor often to come down to the training center and be involved in that way. But you give financially. So I just want you to know we greatly, greatly appreciate uh, your partnership Uh, in church planning. But the thing that I'm most fired up about is uh, the opportunity to open up God's word with you today. And uh, are you guys fired up about getting into God's word? Okay. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're excited about that. So uh, I see that our ushers are at the back and uh, they just want everybody to have a copy of God's word. We want you to be able to follow along. So if if you don't have a Bible with you, we want you to be able to. And they're going to, if you just hold your hand up, they'd be happy to give you one. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 30 this morning, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, but uh, I want you to have a Bible so you can follow along uh, as we go through God's word this morning. Hey, do you guys have, um, when your family gets together, do you guys have stories that as a family that you like often tell and uh, things that maybe happened in the past, but when we just kind of get together, we like to tell those stories and sometimes they're funny stories and we laugh about them Well. Our family has a story like that. Do you mind if I tell you about it? It actually has something to do with the message. So, uh, but uh, I'd love to tell you about it. Um, it happened a number of years ago, actually when my children were much younger. And uh, it was back in the early days of harvest, actually before we had our own building and we were meeting in a school much like this. And uh, we had been at church and then uh, I think we had done some things after because we were coming home later in the day. <coughs> Excuse me. And on the way home, our children said, hey, could we stop at McDonald's for uh, supper? And so we went, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll go to McDonald's. There's one not far from our house. So I remember uh, going into the McDonald's. The thing that was unusual about it is usually at supper time, McDonald's is usually pretty busy, wouldn't you agree? Lots of people in there eating, but there was hardly anybody in there. And uh, we kind of got our food and we turned to go to our table. I remember there was two high school age boys sitting at a table over here eating. I don't know, for some reason, we just kind of went over to the other side and our family started to eat our meal together. And I remember Lynn and I were sitting on this time of the t- side of the table so I could kind of see the boys uh, as I was talking to my children. And we were just enjoying our meal. As we were doing that, I saw two, I don't know, they looked like about college-age boys came walking in the other side there. But what really caught my eye is as they went over and started talking to those two uh, high school age boys is one of the boys had a, I don't know, two by four, maybe cut off, 
about that big in his hand. And uh, the other guy had a, a lead pipe. I don't know, maybe like that. And I remember just kind of thinking to myself, that's kind of unusual, but maybe they were just doing some work outside or something. And I know I was kind of naive, but um, they just kind of started talking to the boys. We're eating, we're enjoying ourselves, when all of a sudden, you remember I said one of the boys had a two by four? He just kind of wound up with that thing and all of a sudden he just cleared the table of those other two guys. There's Big Macs and French fries and, and Cokes flying all over the restaurant and it, he kind of like for that moment had our attention, if you know what I'm saying. And as I was just kind of watching, trying to take in what just happened, he wasn't done. He took that two by four up over his head and he came down with it and he hit one of the kids so hard that was sitting in the seat on the back of the neck, right about there. He knocked him right out of his chair and he's laying on the floor and Lynn and I, our kids are like, have you ever been in one of those moments when you can't believe what you're watching? Well, my wife, Lynn, like a shot, she's five foot three, and she's running across the restaurant going, you boys stop that. You boys stop that right now. And before I knew it, she's across the restaurant, nose to nose with those two boys who, by the way, still had their weapons in their hands going, you boys stop that. You boys stop that right now. Well, as soon as I could get out from under our table, <laughs> be easy on me. Somebody had to protect the kids, right? No, I was actually across the restaurant with Lynn too and there we are standing nose to nose with these two guys with their weapons wondering, you better stop that right now but what are they gonna do to us? All of a sudden they decided we're gonna run out of the restaurant. My wife wasn't finished. She ran out of the restaurant after them. And, and she was thinking. And as we ran out of the restaurant, she had the uh, mindset to, as they got in their cars and drove away, she memorized their license plate. So when we came back into the restaurant together, she could go up to the manager and say, this is the license plate number. They called the police. We found out later on that the police found those two boys. They got their day in court and they got the judgment, which they were rightfully deserved, Right? We laugh about that story as a family now, but you can see how that could have gone in a very different direction. But here's the principle I kind of took away from that story, and it's this. That story had a good ending because in the moment of crisis, my wife, Lynn, acted immediately and decisively that brought about a good result. Would you agree with that? It is. But look, I didn't come all the way from Chicago just to tell you a silly story that happened to us at a McDonald's. The point of that story is to tell us as believers this. I don't know you. I've never met a lot of you before. But I gotta believe in a room this size that there's people sitting here today, followers of Jesus, that are walking through a personal crisis in your life right now. They come in all shapes and sizes. But you're going through a crisis. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're not going through a crisis right now, but guess what, believer? The scripture tells us that that crisis could be just around the corner in our life. Listen, we don't need to fear the crisis. We don't, it's not something that should cause us to be paralyzed. But listen, 
when the crisis comes. If we as believers will act immediately and decisively, but more importantly, biblically in the moment of the crisis, we too can walk through it victoriously and see God accomplish his purposes and use it for good in our life. Do you believe that? And that's what I've come from Chicago to proclaim God's word to you this morning. And the example that we have of this is found in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite stories, 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's a story, an account out of the life of David. You remember David, the guy who wrote the Psalms, the guy who became king of Israel? This is before he was king, uh, but he's got a great uh, example here from his life of how he responded in a crisis in his life that is such an example to us. So, can I just read the story to you? We're gonna look at 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's actually the whole chapter, but I'm just gonna read the first six verses to give you a bit of a context as to what uh, was going on. Whoa. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting at verse one, and it says this. Now, when King David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the, now watch this, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Now here comes the key part of the verb. But David, how did he respond in the crisis? But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. I think there's three essential principles that David's gonna teach us about how to respond in the crisis that we need to do in our life when we come to the crisis that are gonna come right from this account. But before we get into it, let's just bow in a word of prayer. And so, Father, I thank you now for the opportunity that we have to worship you. We've already done it with our voices. We've already done it, worshiped you with our tithes and offerings. And now we want to worship you through the teaching of your word. We want to be attentive and listen so that your word might impact and change and transform us into the likeness of your son. And so, Lord, will you just remove any distractions from us? that would be in our mind or going on in our heart right now so that we could lean into your word this morning. Would you help me as your, your messenger today, Lord? Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you help me to communicate your word in a way that reflects it accurately and practically to our life? Use it to change us, God. We would pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, three essential truths that David's life teaches us as he faced a crisis in his life. There's such a model for us. And here's the first one. In the crisis, I must remember who God is. 
This is so important. This is where it starts. In the crisis, when it comes into your life, learn this from David, in the crisis, I must remember who God is. Now, let me just give you a little context. Like, okay, what was going on in David's life? What, what was going on in this crisis? So let me just give you a little context. So David and his men were actually returning from a battle that they never got to fight. They have actually just walked 75 miles in three days. As you can imagine, David and his men are tired and hungry and they're looking forward to being reunited once again with their families. But as David and his men, in a sense, come up and over the hill and ready to come down to their homes, there were no children running to meet them. There were no wives waiting to welcome them home. Everything and everyone was gone. Only the sound of the smoldering ashes of their burned out homes broke the silence as David and his men stood there in shock, wondering who had done this and what had happened. Okay, church, let's look at the scripture again. Verse one, you tell me, who did this? Well, it tells you right in verse one, who did this? A group of people called the Amalekites. Now, you know, it's so easy to kind of read over this story and just kind of pass over that, but they are playing an important part in this story and we need to know who the Amalekites were. And so I had to look that up. And so let me tell you a little bit of background on who these Amalekite people were. They were actually uh, a nomadic group of people. They were descendants of Esau. And the Amalekites had been longtime enemies of the people of Israel that actually dated all the way back to the time of bondage in Egypt. In fact, it was the Amalekites that were the very first nation who attacked Israel at a time when they were weak and vulnerable, when they had just come out of Egypt. And although God gave Moses and the people of Israel a miraculous victory that day over the Amalekites, God made a promise to Moses, and it was this. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. I think many of you are remembering this story. God said this to Moses. One day, I will take uh, my judgment and vengeance upon the Amalekites for what they attempted to do in attacking you today. Do you remember that story? Now, let's just step out of that because there's a principle that I, that this communi- I want to communicate that's so clear in this part of this story, and it's this. God is faithful to his promises. I believe in a room this size, there's somebody here this morning that this is exactly what you needed to hear this morning. God is faithful to the promises that he makes to us. God does not overlook. God does not forget the promises that he makes to his people. And although over a hundred years had passed since God made that promise to Moses, God is about to use, raise up David uh, to be the instrument of his vengeance, to be the fulfillment of that promise made over a hundred years ago. Listen, loved ones, and rejoice in this. God is faithful to his promises. He is. And he's going to be faithful to you in the face of the crisis that you are walking through and the promises that he has made to us in his word. Okay, let's just kind of step back into the story for a moment. David has a crisis going on in his life. Do you see it? 
There's, there's two things that are going on in David's life right now. Here's the first thing. David's heart is overwhelmed with grief. He's, he, he's wondering, what's happened to my wives? What's happened to my sons and daughters? Everything that is significant and precious to me in my life. Are they alive? Are they dead? Who's taken them? Where are they? David's heart, you can imagine this, dads. David's heart is full of personal grief. But if that wasn't enough, David's men... Men now who are wondering where their wives and children are. Men who are angry in their hearts. Men who are now saying somebody's fault it is that this has happened to us. They're pointing the finger at David. And now men who had fought with him, followed him, who had been faithful to David. Now those same men are turning and saying, David, it's your fault and we're going to kill you. We're going to stone you. Listen, church. (laughs) David had a crisis going on in his life. But here's the important thing. Here's the important thing. How did David respond to it? He's going to teach us something here. How did he respond to the crisis in his life? Well, look at verse 6. It tells us. What does it say there? What was his response? It says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Do you see that right at the end of verse 6? David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. The key word there is strength. Do you know what that word means? It actually means to grow mighty, to become strong, to grow courageous. Listen, in the face of the crisis, David did not become fearful. David did not become full of doubt. David did not become paralyzed. David didn't start to question God. It says that he strengthened himself. He grew strong and mighty and courageous. But listen, it wasn't in himself. Who was it in? Tell me, church. It was in the Lord, his God. Do you know what that means? David found strength in the face of the crisis when he reminded himself about who his God was, his character, his promises, and how he had experienced him in the past. There's a principle here for us loved ones. And don't miss this. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. And it's this. A right response in the crisis has everything to do with right and biblical thinking. Can I say that again? A right response in the crisis has everything to do with right and biblical thinking about who God is And what are his promises? And what are his plans and purposes that he's revealed to us in his word? And I'm telling you, as I begin to draw those things to my mind and memory, as I get into God's word and renew my mind, I find myself strengthened in the Lord and who he will be for me no matter what crisis I face. Do you see that? So here it is, loved ones. So what are some of the things, as we remember who our God is, what are some things that God's revealed to us in his word about who he is? Well, there's many things that I could say to you, but could I just share five that I trust will be an encouragement to you? 
They've been an encouragement to me. And here they are if you want to write them down or I think they're going to come on the screen. Here's number one. In the crisis, I will not fear. Why? Because God is with me. It's the promise of his presence. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse six. Aren't you thankful for that? Oh, here's another great truth. I will not doubt God is always in control. It's the promise of his sovereignty. Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Oh, here's another one that I love. In the crisis, I will not despair. God is always good. It's the promise of his goodness. Romans chapter eight and verse 28. Here's the fourth one. I will not falter in the crisis. God is always watching. It's the promise of of his attentiveness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Here's the last one. I trust this will encourage you. I will not fail. God is always victorious. It's the promise that he sees beginning to end. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17. We need to learn this important lesson from the life of David. When the crisis comes into your life, the most important thing, the first thing that you must do is I must remember who my God is. Let it get deep into your heart. Let it begin to renew your mind and you will begin to look at that crisis differently and be strengthened in your life. Here's the second thing that I see uh, from this story. What, I, what should I do in the crisis? Here's the second point. In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. That's the second principle David teaches us. In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. Some of you are going, okay, Rick, that sounds good, but where are you getting that from? Well, look at the story. The scripture goes on, starting at verse seven through nine. Here's what it says. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. We're gonna come back to that. So Abiathar brought the ephod to overtake them. He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor. That's where I get this second principle from. Those three verses right there. In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. Okay, question. So as I was reading those verses, and, it, and David said, bring me the ephod. How many people were thinking to themselves, what on earth is an ephod and why would David be wanting that in the middle of a crisis? Were you thinking that? I thought that, so I had to look it up. So I said, well, what's an ephod? And why is that important in this story? Well, let me tell you what an ephod is. Uh, an ephod was like a sleeveless vest that the high priest would wear over his ceremonial robes. On the front of that vest was like a little pocket or pouch and in that pocket were these, was these, were these two little stones, you'll recognize this word, called the Urim and Thummim. And that's what David was after. That's why he asked for the ephod. Okay, now some of you are going, 
okay, Rick, I'm not really clear yet. Like, what's a Urim and Thummim and how is that going to help David in the crisis? Well, good question. Here's what the Urim and Thummim was. They were like these, they're actually two uh, flat stones. And uh, they had identical markings on each side of the stone. On one side of the stone, it would have the marking of Urim, which meant to be cursed. On the other side of the stone, it had a marking, which was Thummim, which meant to be perfect. You see, they didn't have God's completed word. David didn't have that back in, in, in his day. And so this was an instrument that God would give to the uh, spiritual leaders of Israel to determine his will and his direction when they faced decisions and crisis in the go after these guys or what exactly do you want me to do? So this is what David would do. They'd take those stones and they'd actually just roll them out on the ground like dice. And depending on how they turned up, they would determine uh, what God wanted them to do. If both the stones turned up Urim, which meant to be cursed, God was saying, it's not my will. I don't want you to do that. If both the stones turned up Thummim, which meant to be perfect, God was saying, that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to be obedient to that. That's my plan for your life. If one stone turned up Urim and one stone turned up Thummim, maybe they did two out of three. I, I'm not really sure. But in this story, the stones obviously both came up Thummim, which meant to be perfect. And as God... David sought God's will and what he wanted him to do in this crisis when it was clear what God's will and what his word was to David. Don't you love his response? His response was immediate. His response was complete. And David did exactly what God had told him to do. In fact, verse nine tells us that when God's will was clear, it says that David and his men went. Learn this important principle from the story of David. Listen, loved ones, in the crisis, I must do exactly what God's word says. Now, you know, as I thought about this story, I thought to myself, there's lots of good reasons that David could have offered God as to why he shouldn't do what God was clearly telling him to do? Could you think of some of those things? I wrote down three of them. I thought all good reasons for non-obedience on David's part. Here's one of them. David could have looked at God and said, hey God, we just walked 75 miles in three days. Me and my men are still tired and hungry and we're, we're just not physically ready to do what you're telling us to do, right? Or how about this? He could have looked at God and said, God, like, me and my men, we're still grieving over the loss of our wives and children. We don't even know if they're alive or not. And God, we're just not emotionally ready to do this yet. I, I, humanly speaking, we could have understood that, but that's not what David said. Or how about this? David could have looked at God and he said, God, I see you're telling me to go, but God, I don't even know how to mean these Amalekites there are. I, I don't know what the plan is. When, if, even if we find them, God, we're just not even strategically ready to be obedient yet. But this is the part I love about the story. David didn't offer any excuses. There was no hesitation on his part. When God's word and will was clear, there was just total and immediate obedience. Do you see that? Loved ones. Do not miss this important principle. 
when the crisis comes into your life, oh, I got to remember who my God is. But secondly, it brings me confidence then to do exactly what he tells me to do. Do you ever see that God's will is clear for you? His word tells you exactly what to do. Do you ever hesitate with it? Do you ever question it? I do. I'm embarrassed to say that, but I have. I, I don't always completely obey. And I, I deal with the consequences of that in my life. Do, can I just offer four things that we do uh, when God's word is clear? Here's one thing that we do. Negative responses to God's will. First of all, sometimes we question God's word. Have you ever done that? Like God says, do this. And you kind of go, hey God, you don't, you, don't, you don't really mean that, do you? Or here's another thing that we do. Sometimes we negotiate with God. Like, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. Or here's another thing that we do. We rationalize with God about his word. We kind of go, God, that's just way too hard. I, I can't completely do that. I'll do some of it, but I, I kind of got my own ideas and I'm gonna do some of these things. Or here's the fourth thing that we do and I do. Sometimes we just flat out, we disobey God's word. Have you done that? God's will and word is clear and we just kind of go flat out, I'm not doing it. I'm taking this into my own hands. I'm gonna do it my way. And then we wonder, why are there so many believers walking around in the midst of a crisis, defeated and discouraged in their life? It's because we won't do what God's word says. And so let's take that one step further as we kind of uh, think about our own life. And it's this. So what is God's word telling you to do right now? Today? Whether you're walking through a crisis in your life or not. Here's just some things that maybe God's word is telling you to do. Number one, is there a person you need to forgive? Is there a person you need to forgive? And maybe you're making decisions where you know God's word is so clear and I know I need to do that, but I've put myself in the prison of unforgiveness and my heart's getting filled with bitterness towards that person and know the freedom, loved one, that comes through forgiveness being extended God's way even in that crisis in your life. Here's another one. Is it a relationship that you need to restore or end Maybe you're involved in a relationship that it just isn't right. It's not honoring God. It needs to end. Or maybe it's a relationship that's fallen apart and it's not honoring God and where it's at and it needs to be restored. It might be some hard work. It might be some tough decisions. But if that's what God's will is for you, do it. Here's another one. Is it a sin you need to confess? Is it possibly a sin you need to confess, an attitude or action, and the Spirit of God keeps fingering that thing in your life and you know right now what it is, but you just won't repent and turn from it and know the blessing that comes through that victory? Or here's the last thing I would just say. Is it possible that God's word is clearly telling you there's a step of faith or obedience you need to take? It's a step of a faith or obedience that you need to to take. Listen, loved ones, if you want to know and experience victory and fruitfulness in the midst of that crisis in your life, can I just tell you, learn from the life of David, do what God says. 
totally and completely. Okay, there's one more principle that we learn from this story from the life of David, and uh, it's this. In the crisis, I must receive God's provision. In the crisis, I must receive God's provision. Now, this is really from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, but I'm just gonna read three verses to give us a little bit of context, again, as to what was going on. So let me start at verse 11, and it says this. And they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. Now down to verse 13. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said this, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to a, here it comes, an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. Now down to verse 15. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you to this band. This is what this uh, part of the story is teaching us. Here's the last and final principle. In their crisis, I must receive God's provision. In the crisis, I must receive God's provision. Now listen, let me again just tell you a little bit of what's going on here in the story. So we've kind of gone through the first two points. You know, David remembered who his God was. Now God, he's now doing what God says. You know, he got the ephod, he rolled the stones. God says, go and pursue this enemy. You will have victory. So now David and his 600 men are going after these Amalekites. Now here's the funny part. They don't know where they are. They don't know how many of they, them there are, but they're just trusting God and believing as they're walking by faith and obedience to what he's told them to do, that God is going to give them the victory and bring them to the Amalekites and they're gonna get their wives and children back. So here's David just walking, believing God's gonna do that with his 600 men. And not even halfway into this trip, one third of his men, you can do the math, one third of 600 is 200 of his men say, David, we can't go on. We're too tired. We're exhausted. That's why they talk about this brook, Bezor, because that's where they would got to and they want to stay there. Now, men, can I just talk to you for a minute? Put yourself in these men's shoes, your wives, your children. Everything that's important to you has been taken. You're going after them and now you're looking at the leader who's leading you saying, I love them, but I'm just too tired. Now, men, how would you like to have that conversation with your wife and kids when they're rescued and brought back and there you are by the brook sitting on a lawn chair being refreshed and you have to look at your wife and say, I really love you and I really love you kids. I'm so glad you're back, but I was just too tired to come and get you. Is that a good conversation to have with your wife? Uh, that would not be a great conversation to have with my wife. I just, I just kind of laughed at that part as I was kind of going through the story. But listen, here's the point. Think about this, men. You're going after everything that's absolutely important to you. You would think that David would want all 600 men, for sure, if we're going to be victorious in this battle. 
Why could David look at 200 of his men in that moment, in the face of that crisis, and say, no problem, guys. You just rest here. You can stay here. The 400 men and I are going after our wives and children. God's going to give us the victory, and we'll bring your wives and children back, and you can rejoice in the spoil. That's what he's saying in the verses that we just had to kind of go over there. How could David say that? Why? Because his trust was not in how many men he had. His trust was not in his plan and strategy to overcome the Amalekites. Who is his trust in? Tell me, church. His trust was in God. I believe that David would have gone on by himself if he had to because he believed that God had told him to do it and God would be faithful to his promises in the face of the crisis. He trusted that as he and his men were obedient to what God had said, that they would experience God's provision. Okay, so back into the story. So David and his men, they're walking. Doesn't tell us how for how long, but they're just kind of walking, being faithful. And as they're walking, looking for the Amalekites, they come across this guy who's laying in the field. He, he appears maybe that he's dead, but they pick him up, they take him back to the camp, They feed him and nourish him for a couple of days. And then when he's well enough, David says, who are you and why are you laying in the middle of the field? That would be an interesting question. The guy identifies himself as a young Egyptian. He said, I was a servant to one of the, remember, Amalekites. Can you imagine the impact that that made on David and his men when the word Amalekite came out of his mouth? These men must have been so excited. These men must have been praising God because all of a sudden they realized this is God's provision. This guy can lead us to where our wife and children are. This is gonna be the victory. Can you imagine the, in the camp that night, the worship service that went on as they praised God for his faithfulness and his provision in their life? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the impact that it would have on these men for the rest of their lives as they remembered that God is faithful to do the promises that he's made and that his provision comes as we step on in obedience and follow him? And it must have been a great impact in their life. So here's how the story finishes. So the next morning, David and his 400 men come down that mountain while the Amalekites are still partying and drunk and celebrating their false gods for the victory that they thought that they they had won. And it says that David and his men battled with those guys for a few days, killing all of them, except for 400 young men who got away on camels. But here's how the story ends. David and his men get back their wives, their sons, their daughters, and everything that was dear to them, God was faithful to his promise. Now this story has a great ending. I love this story, it's a great story about an awesome God who's faithful to do what he promises he'll do. But there's a principle here that we cannot miss and I just want you to draw your attention to it again and it's this, God's provision always follows our obedience. We see this all through the Old Testament. You see it all through the New Testament. This is the principle. It's important that you get this. God's provision always follows 
our obedience. Don't you wish it was the other way around? God would give us what we want and then it would be so much easier to, be, to step out by faith and be obedient to what he does. But that's not God's way. So often his way is step out in obedience, trust me, walk by faith to my promises and what my word says, and then you will experience my provision. Now listen, this story demonstrates two important things about God's provision that are very important for us to understand. And here's the first one. God's provision always comes according to his timing. We got to get that. God's provision always comes according to his timing. It's not according to my schedule when I think it should work, when I think it's best that God would do it. God's provision always comes according to his timing. Now listen, do you think as those men were walking for several days, just wondering where they were going and would God really direct them and would he take them to the Amalekites? Would we really get our, like do you think during those days that they were walking, wondering where they were going, that there weren't some conversations between some of the men wondering, are we stupid? Are we foolish? Is this really gonna happen? Are we just in some wild goose chase? Do you think those men doubted at times? The answer is yes. Just like you and I do sometimes when we're walking through the crisis and wondering is God there? Is he at work? Will he provide? But see it in the story. God's provision always comes according to his timing, not ours. And here's the second thing. God's provision always comes his way. Now this is important. God's provision always comes his way. God's provision always meets our need, not our want. That's a hard sentence, but it's true. God's provision always meets our, meets our need, not our want. God does, always does what is best, not always what we think is best. Here's the point I'm trying to make, and it's this. Listen, what I mean by that is we don't always get our wives and kids back. Do you know what I'm saying? In this story, David and his men, that's what God promised them. And God was faithful to do that to his promise. And David and his men got all their wives and children back. But when we're walking through a crisis, we don't always get our wives and children back. In other words, that represents we don't always get what we want. But God says, I will always provide exactly what you need. Trust me. I see beginning to end. I know what is best. You see, sometimes God's provision for us as we're walking through the crisis is a greater sense of his presence. What, a, what, what more could we ask? It's, it's his presence. A greater sense that he's with me, that I'm not forgotten, that God sees what is going on. It's sometimes what he gives me is a greater sense of his presence that encourages me. Sometimes what we get, uh, God's provision, is his strength when I feel weak, like I just can't do this for another day. God, I, I don't know how I'm going to endure this. God gives you the strength, and when you've kindly walked through the other side of the crisis, you kind of look back and you go, how did I do that apart from God's grace and strength? that he gave to me. And then here's the last thing. Sometimes God's provision in the crisis is an increased faith. Sometimes that's exactly what we need. It's increased faith to trust him, to believe him, to know what he's promised me and to believe that one day in his way, in his timing, 
I will receive that provision. In 1997, that was a while ago, but in 1997, our church had just moved into our very first building. And uh, we were excited about it. And we raised money and we bought the building. We built out as much as we could afford. But the problem was, and it was a good problem, kind of like your church. Our church was growing and people were coming and uh, we needed more room. You know, we, we needed a bigger worship center and we needed more offices so we could have more staff. We needed more children's ministry space. I mean, God was at work. It was fruitful, but we needed more space. But it was 1997 and I don't remember, know what it was like here in Canada, but in the States, the economy was tough and people were having challenge meeting needs in their own families. And we were thinking, how are we going to raise this money at a time that's challenging and difficult? And I remember talking about that as elders and so... You ever seen those billboards along the expressway? You got them here? You see the advertising? Well, we had one right on our property. And I remember that company coming to us and saying, hey, look, church, leaders, if, if you guys will let us put our advertising on that billboard, we're going to pay you a boatload of money. And I remember as, as one of the elders going, there's God's provision. That's it. You know, it's going to come through this billboard and that's the money we'll use to build out our building. And there was eight of our elders at that time and seven of us are all saying that. And one guy went, nope. One elder said, no, I don't think so. We're kind of looking at him like, what? He said, no, because what if they put something on that billboard that was so contrary to what we're teaching our people and would be an embarrassment to our church and I just don't think we should do it. I don't feel right about it. And I remember seven of us kind of going, oh, come on, man. Like, we, we can put something in a contract. We can work that out. Don't you see? This is God's provision. We had a wise elder board chairman who said, you know what? I don't sense a consensus. Kind of like your elders would do. And he said, let's take a week and pray about it. So I remember walking out of the room kind of going, okay, I'll pray about it for a week. The answer's clear. But yeah, let's, let's, let's pray about it for a week. We came back a week later and whose hearts do you think changed? <laughs> All seven of us. And as we went around the room to a man, I couldn't believe what was coming out of our mouths, but I knew it was right. It was what God was telling us. We said, no, we're going to say no to that. We're going to say no to that money. I believe God's got a provision that's going to come a different way. And I remember going, this is crazy, but I know it's right. Four weeks later, about four weeks later, there was a church in our area that had, it was sad, it had closed down. They actually had closed their church. They had sold all their resources and they had started coming to our church. We didn't know it. But this small group of people were already in our church. And I remember the pastor of that church and the elder board chairman came to our elders one night and this is what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, we've sold our church. We've sold all our resources we felt like God just told us to go to a church where we felt God was at work. And we feel like God is at work in your church. And if you'll just let us come here and be a part of this church community, we're going to take the million dollars that we sold our building for and we're just going to lay it at your feet with no strings attached. It's yours to use however you want. And that was the money. That was the beginning of the build-out of our Rolling Meadows campus to what we see today. Now listen, loved ones. 
I'm telling you, all this, this whole story is coming down to these three important principles, and it's this. In the crisis, remember who God is. That's where it starts. Remember who he is. Here's the second thing. In the crisis, no matter how difficult, do exactly what God says. Once we know who he is, it's much easier to do what he says. But here's the third thing. And then as you walk by faith and in obedience to what God has told you to do, expect his provision, whatever it might be, because it's going to be best for our life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story of David, a guy just like us, a guy who struggled with things like we do, but a man who had a heart, God, for you. I pray that he would be a model, an example to me and to these people who are gathered here this morning. Like when the crisis comes into my life, what God do you want me to do? How can I walk through this in a way that will bring fruitfulness and victory to my life? Help us to remember who you are. Help us to do exactly what you tell us. And Lord, by faith, would we then wait for your provision in our life that comes your way and your timing. Thank you, God, that you love us enough that you'd even want to be involved in our lives like this. I pray for these people, Lord, some who are walking through a crisis. I pray that this message would be a great encouragement to them this morning. I pray for those who aren't, that this morning, Lord, we'd be again reminded of these truths and that day's coming in our life and that we'd be ready to apply them as David. I pray for the person here this morning, Lord, who maybe doesn't even know you and are wondering, why would I ever want to do these things? And that they would see that their most greatest need, the greatest crisis in their life is coming to a place where they put their faith and trust in you believing that you love them enough to send your son to die on a cross, to pay for their sin, that we might be forgiven and have a relationship with you, then gives us a desire to follow you in this way. We thank you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.